Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, who will be here shortly, hopefully. And we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio. You don't want to miss out today's episode. We are excited to welcome Dr. Chad Savage from Your Choice Direct Care in Brighton, Michigan. Is that correct, Dr. Savage? You got it, Sean. Awesome. Well, we've had many direct primary care practitioners on our practice before or on our podcast before. And why don't you tell us a little bit about direct primary care, a little bit about what had you um, start your direct primary care practice and kind of just, you know, a little bit of your story. And then we'll go into the paper that you've you and Dr. Lee Gross published. Sure, sure. I uh, I'm actually kind of an old school doc. I've been practicing for about 20 years now. And I worked for almost 15 years in the insurance-based model, and uh, and uh, working in it for a long time, you could eventually start to get the sense that something was wrong. You couldn't be the doctor that you wanted to be, that you weren't working in a system that facilitated care, but actually caused obstructions to care. So I started to become a little bit disenfranchised with being a doctor, which was amazing because it was a lifelong dream. You know, most people considered it a noble profession, and it seemed like it had lost some of that. Um, Well, around 2012, I started looking around and I saw some practices like uh, Josh Umbers and Atlas MD out in Wichita, Kansas, uh, doing this innovative model. And at first I watched him because I thought, uh, you know, that that sounds so wonderful. It's such a great solution. Uh, There's no way it's going to work. You know, he's going to he's going to die off. And after watching him for for several years, I realized he wasn't going to die off. I started entertaining it myself. Uh, and in uh, 2015, I decided to pull the trigger and do direct primary care, which for those of you who don't under- know what that is, it's largely a membership model of medical care, meaning you pay monthly, a set, affordable, low-cost monthly membership fee, and it includes, for most of us, everything we do, all the visits, there's no co-pays, um, just not to sound too much like an advertisement, but my own, my own practice, we schedule in 30-minute, one-hour blocks, we see people same day or next day. Uh, we include, uh, uh, you know, everything we do in the office. If we do EKG spirometry, or uh, spirometry, we do joint injections. All that's included in that membership model. And um, uh, and so this was a great. We fig- figured that this was actually creating a, a wonderful bargain for our patients who have these high deductibles or paying these outrageous fees. But it also was wonderful for us because we cut our expenses by over fifty percent by uh, eliminating billing and coding for insurance companies and got them out of that doctor-patient relationship, which really corrupted that relationship. So it's so that's a, a synopsis of the of the, the trip we took. And, and uh, you know, to get to this point, now I've been practicing it for six years. I'm very blessed. I have a, a robust practice. It's, it's uh, you know, we bounce off a of full all the time, bringing in patients at the rate of attrition. Um, and um, uh, we've tried to design it in a way that not only gives better care, but actually reduce costs. Well, and and we talk about affordable health care quite often, but tell us how affordable direct primary care really is so our listeners and viewers can um, understand really how affordable health care for uh, with a personalized doctor like yourself can be. Yeah, so so it's it's a, it, we increase the affordability on many, many levels. We knew when we first started doing this, I looked at a lot of well, trying to figure out why medicine had the feeling that there was something wrong. And we realized that a lot of that was based on how it was set up to be paid, how it was financed. And the reason why is we were financing it through third parties, insurance companies, governmental entities, and each of them was trying to control that relationship. Instead of being the purity of the doctor-patient relationship, myself or other doctors working directly for their patient in their best interest, we were half working for the patient 
but half or more than half working for the third party, trying to make them happy and jump through the hoops that those third parties wanted. And that really was corrupting that, that, uh, that relationship. So when we did this, I knew that I would be buying myself freedom back to be the doctor that I wanted to be. But we knew that anything that's going to last, it has to be economically viable for the patient as well. So we looked at all the ways that we could save people money. And, and, um, and again, I give a lot of credit to the doctors who actually preceded me in doing this, Dr. Umber, Dr. Dr. Lee Gross, and some of the others. And we looked at things such as uh, labs. So a classic laboratory panel of uh, you know, blood tests. You know, if you have a high deductible insurance plan, you pay for that out of pocket. It's so funny. People say, well, I'm going to use my insurance. Okay, great. You know, do you want to pay cash? No, no, I'm going to use my insurance. Okay, well, do you have a high deductible? Yes, I have a high deductible. Well, guess what? You are paying cash. You're just paying a lousy price. Um, So we went out to determine what the prices really were on these things. So I looked at things like a CBC. A CBC is a blood count. You know, looks at white cells, which are immune cells, platelets, which are your clotting cells, hemoglobin and hematocrit, which tell you the thickness of your blood. You can get a differential, which tells you the various types of of, uh, cell lines, immune cells. So it's a lot of information. Uh, that, you know, that test, I'll frequently ask people, how much do you think that will cost? And people go, I don't know, 100, 120 bucks. And in fact, due to transparency laws, our local university hospital does have to post their prices. And that's about what it is. Um, we get it for about $3.50. I, I, I know. I, I had to, you know, of course, I knew the answer when when I asked you, but I just had to have you give an example like that because it is unbelievable that a local hospital would charge $120 and to pay cash, it's $3, $3, less than a cup of coffee for labs and talk about a hospital ripping people off. And I just want to get the word out there. That's exactly what is happening. They are ripping people off. And thank you, Dr. Savage, for people like yourselves that are transparent in pricing and offering people affordable health care. Thanks for stepping out of the box. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We almost could. I like to almost consider myself a whistleblower. You hear about whistleblowers who are are telling the truth about what's really going on in government or whatever. I think we're whistleblowers of the health care system. I mean, just as an example, we also dispense medicines. And I can treat hypertension, one of the leading causes of premature preventable death in the United States with a drug called amlodipine that we dispense from our office for a 100-day supply for 70 cents. That works out to an entire month of treating one of the leading causes of preventable death in the United States for less than the cost of a single gumball. Right. I mean, that's a good analogy. And and part of the problem with that is, is that, you know, most pharmacies are billing insurance and they're playing the game too. So that same enlodipine is going to be 50 bucks at a pharmacy um, a month through your insurance because it'll be a copay. Um, although if you find a cash pharmacy and you tell them you're paying cash, not through your insurance, you know, you might be able to find a bigger discount. Now to get it for 70 cents, probably not. But um, it's just an example of why really people should pay cash for most things that are not catastrophic, correct? Absolutely. And and the other advantage of paying cash is that you actually keep the doctor honest and you're aware of the transaction. When you use a third party like the government or insurance companies, a lot of people have no clue what things cost. And if they do, they look with amusement and say, oh, you know, that was, oh my gosh, that was how many thousands? Ha ha. Glad I used my insurance. Didn't cost me anything. Unaware that it did cost them. It's going to come back and hit them the next year in the premium. It's going to increase the overall health care costs. So by keeping that consumer, that healthcare consumer engaged where they actually care about these things, um, they actually shop for, for services on non-emergent services. And, and 
you know, that something like 75 to 80% of all medical expenses are shoppable, meaning you can actually say, well, I'm going to go down to the imaging center down the street and get an MRI. And this is legitimate pricing we're able to get them for, for about $300 versus the hospital where it's three to $4,000. Right. And, um, you know, most people don't understand when they think of markups, they think, well, this is, you know, these services are marked up 10, 20, 30%. Or, you know, in outrageous case, it'd be 100%. No, no, markups in medical are in the thousands of percent. Well, I, hello, I'm Janet, by the way, doctor. Um, I think one of the things, though, that gets sold to the clients is that, you know, shopping healthcare is so hard. It's so complicated. Um, and that's why it's nice to have folks like you on, doctor, to, to explain that, you know, a lab really isn't that complicated and nor is your medication if we have a real conversation and, and be honest about what we are paying for and what we're going to um, be willing to pay for. Because I don't think we have that option as a patient or a client when we have a third party that's dictating um, the amounts that are being paid. And to me, it seems like it was very easy for you to go to the lab and say, what's your fee? Because yeah. they had to post it. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, people make it sound like shopping for is always a, always a burden or a negative, but it's actually not always, right? right? What if the choice you're given by your insurance company is, is a suboptimal one? Well, having right. the ability to shop around and look around is good. And we obviously talk about how we can get good prices, and that's usually what we talk about. But that doesn't necessarily always mean you need to get the cheapest one out there. You, you know, the value of services is a combination of many things, um, many of which may be um, somewhat arbitrary, right, or based on your own predilection. For example, you may see that a doctor down the street just has creature comforts that you like better. They're more responsive. They get better service. Maybe they got, uh, I don't know, they got a car machine in their waiting room or whatever, but something you like a lot. And perhaps they're not the cheapest doctor in town or the cheapest imaging center, but you like those. You get determined for yourself if that's what you want. Whereas if you go through the insurance, you don't get that determination. They tell you where you get to go. It's in network or it's not, or you're going to pay out the nose um, for this service. So, so shopping is not a, necessarily a burden. Shopping gives you the ability to choose what you want for yourself, but cost is a factor in that and an important one. So it, it, in, in fact, it ensures that quality is going to be high and cost is going to be as low as the market will allow. So it's not just about cost. No, it's it's like any other it's like any other um, sh thing we shop for: service. quality, price, and service. Yep. And fortunately, in healthcare, we can get all three at a good price, good quality, good service if we shop. Now, if we go to some place that our insurance company tells us to go, we're probably not going to get good price. I mean, that's for sure. Possibly not good quality, and definitely not good service, um, because the consumer is not the end payer. So in general, the doctor, the hospital, they don't care about the consumer. They don't care about the patient because the patient's not paying the bill. They care about the people that are paying the bill. And that is just how, how it works. So um, when you're transparent and there's no third party involved, all three of those things go up. Yeah. Amen. Actually, I have a slide in some of my presentations that I do that show how money flows through the healthcare system. And it shows how it always actually originates with the patient. People don't understand that. They think it's free. It always originates with you, whether it comes in premiums, deferred wages from your, your salary, whether it's taxes, you're paying for your healthcare one way or the other. So then the, the money goes over and it either drops into the government or it drops into an insurance company. But if it drops into the government, which most people don't understand is the government subcontracts out to insurance companies. Right. 
So it ends up going to the insurance company who manages those funds, and then eventually it ends up in the doctor. But it originated with the patient in the beginning. So why not cut out those other entities and just allow that transaction to occur in its purest form? When it's dropping through those other entities, they're not only taking a portion out for themselves, but they're putting their fingerprints and their stipulations on that payment, which alters which alters the trajectory. So if you wanted to help the most amount of people, let's say you became a totalitarian dictator and you, you, but you're, you're benevolent uh, totalitarian dictator and you wanted to figure out how to help the most number of people, which entity would you put it in the government, the insurance companies or with those individual patients to control. And if you want to get the most bang for your buck and have the most happy people, you would keep those dollars with the people who are the end consumer, which in this case is the patient. The free market always works, and that include that's from the individual consumer going up. The free market works. Yeah. Well, I, I also think, too, that consumers believe that if you go to a big entity that you're going to get the best care and the standard of care is going to be a higher quality. But I think when I look at when we build insurance, sometimes you're you're going through several steps before they get the actual care that they need. Is that how you saw it when you were practicing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. You know, people think that, you know, we, we do a free market because we can charge more. In fact, that, that that's the opposite of the truth. Absolutely. Um, what people don't understand about the free market is it's actually kind of a vicious bedfellow. Um, it, it does not suffer fools well. Um, if you provide <laughs> a suboptimal service or giving a suboptimal quality, people voluntarily pay you. They will not continue to voluntarily pay you if you're giving a, a bad, doing a bad job, giving a good uh, a suboptimal service. And that's a good thing because that's a signal back that that loss of business is a signal back to that entity, whether it's a practice or a doctor or a hospital or whatever, that they're not doing a good job and they need to do a better job because they're being outcompeted. And if they don't correct, other entities will come in and replace them, providing a better service. Um, and so it keeps us honest as, as doctors. So for example, if I start overcharging and trying to exploit my patients, or I, or I start getting lazy and not returning calls or, or, or returning messages in a prompt fashion, and I'm not following through with the things I promised to them, there are other doctors in my community who they can go to, and other doctors who are in fact doing this model, and they may offer a cheaper price or a better service, and they will go to them. And so I either have to offer a higher level of care or a better price or a combination of the two to continue to win their loyalty and their dollars. So it's not easy. If you're not good in a free market, you fail. And that's okay because we don't want a bunch of failing bad practices out there. In fact, the third party payer system, the insurance governmental complex, largely facilitates uh, ineptitude. Exactly. Um, I was just going to say that. I mean, think about, you know, think about network providers in general, Dr. Savage, is that if they're in network with an insurance, they don't have to treat the patient well. They don't have to give a good price. Period. And, yeah. and, and, you know, you talk about doctor, you know, if you don't return patients calls, patients will probably go somewhere else. Think about in the traditional healthcare insurance system that happens all the time. Now I will say this, it's not always the fault of the doctor. It's a system problem, but think about the poor service that patients put up with and high prices with these insurance company based practices. It's, it, it would never work in any other market. And that's what, that's why we need to let them know that there are people like you out there. Yeah. So if you've ever gone to a doctor that's flippant, disregarding, maybe condescending, you're probably going to a burned out doctor and all the bureaucracy of those systems burns them out. 
um, who is also not subject to 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 your you know other than maybe a satisfaction survey or something like that really isn't accountable to you. So so they're dissatisfied, unhappy, burned out, and and you know you're not the end consumer anyways. They're really paid by the insurance company or the government, yep. and they want to they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them, and they don't perceive that they're being paid by you even if they really are. So um, thank you so much for that. That was very educational and empowering to, to our viewers and listeners that, you know, are always looking for alternative means to um, take charge of their health. And part of that, when I, when I talk to patients, it's not just being proactive in their own health, but that also includes financial. Um, take charge in that part too. That's the only way we're going to fix the system. They are the consumer. So you and Dr. Lee Gross wrote a paper recently that was published. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So we were we we're uh, very blessed. We're part of the. Uh, um, uh, he's the the president of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, and I'm the president of DPC Action. Um, we're an advocacy group for uh, trying to facilitate uh, policies that uh, that allow DPC direct primary care. What I'm doing to to prosper and grow because there are a lot of hurdles in our way beyond the normal barriers of the third party payer system. I mean, everything in our system is designed around that. We have to find ways of slithering through this morass of, of, uh, of uh, third-party payer system to try to make ourselves appealing to people. But there are also legislative uh, uh, hurdles. For example, with the IRS, there's ambiguity as to whether or not you can actually use HSAs, HRAs, MSAs, FSAs, all these tax-deferred savings accounts um, for direct primary care. So people who don't know what an HSA, a health savings account is, they should probably learn. They're one of the best saving modalities out there. You're not taxed on contribution to the account, you're allowed to invest it like a 401k, you're not taxed on growth. And if you use it for health, you're not taxed on when you use it. So you're not taxed at any phase of that, even a 401k is taxed at some point. So it's one of the set best savings modalities, people should really use it. Well, one of the disadvantages of it for us is it's unclear, at least according to the IRS, whether they can use them for us. Many people do. I don't know of anybody who's, who's had issues with it, with the IRS, but they, the IRS has not formally stated that we are a HSA qualified expense. You can use it uh, for your chiropractor. You can use it for buying your meds. Uh, I've even heard people using it for massage and things of that sort, but your primary care doctor paid in a monthly membership. They apparently are, are, are very confused as whether or not they're <laughs> providing a medical service, which is ironic because many HMOs pay doctors in capitation, which is a monthly, right. monthly payment. <laughs> so if that monthly payment comes from an insurance company, perfectly fine. We're not insurance. But if we get paid directly from the patient in a monthly membership, then suddenly they're confused. Maybe you guys are an insurance company. I'm a, we are a two-doctor practice. We're a small little two-doctor practice. We are not an insurance company. So um, we should be qualified under under HSA, but it's, it's unclear. So in this Heritage paper, we were blessed. Heritage came to us. They're a very prominent um, you know, think tank, very influential within DC yes. circles, and they asked for us to write a paper on DPC for them. And and so this is great, you know, I mean, for our little fledgling movement to be able to get this kind of recognition. So Dr. Gross and I spent many months going back and forth with Heritage and many, many edits trying to create a, a reasonable roadmap for legislators who want to help our movement grow and which would really help you know the the what is it now three four trillion dollar i believe it's i give it i think it's close to four trillion dollar healthcare industry in the united states um which if to put it into perspective is, is approximately the size of the german gdp so the entire nation of germany 
the largest economy in Europe. We spend as much in healthcare in America as their entire gross domestic product. Um, so it would really cut down costs. If you, if you even shave that by 25%, you cut a trillion dollars out of annual expenditures in the United States. So trying to help that grow to become more accessible to people. Um, so we worked back and forth and we started making policy recommendations. So the first part of that paper explains what we are. The second part tells what the, the, the executive branch could do, the legislative branch could do, um, states and municipalities could do. So we try to give some legislative advice at each, each, uh, uh, each uh, rung of government. Um, and we clarifying things like, yes, we are a HSA eligible expense. We should be. And, and recommendations is how they could change that code to, to clarify that. Uh, trying to help things to there's exclusionary practices that a, that some of the HMOs do where they if you make a referral as a doctor in some states who is a DPC doctor so you're technically out of network um, they will say even if you're referring to an in-network doctor so this mo modifies the payment nothing at all they will refuse to accept your referral because they don't pay you. Um, I think that's an anti-competitive practice. They're trying. They the, many of them, such as Blue Cross Blue Shield, have eighty percent market penetration or something of that sort. They have a near monopoly power in, right. in my state, um, and uh, they can really harm the little guy who's trying to get a start, like DPC, uh, through those type of practices. And they deny that patient access to the product for which they've paid, which is their insurance. They paid for their insurance. And they're saying, no, we won't accept a referral because we don't like the doctor who is making the referral. Nothing based on, on medical legitimacy of that referral. It could be a perfectly valid referral. So they're not denying it on validity sake. They're denying it because they don't like the referring doctor. And I think that's anti-competitive and, and um, uh, bad practice. Wow. I didn't know that was going on. Um, do, patients, do patients see that? Do you see that quite often? I mean, how often do you see that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, as HMOs take a bigger and bigger chunk of the market share, um, yeah, we, we see it a decent amount. There are some self-referral HMOs that it's not an issue for. We don't generally have problems with PPOs, uh, but uh, but uh, certain HMOs uh, and who, who, who would, I, you know, for worry about them suing me, I won't say their names specifically right now, um, but uh, but do uh, use that exclusion. Uh, Maine it was wonderful. Maine recently passed a couple years back, passed a, a law indicating that they could not engage in those type of anti-competitive practices. You know, if you're denying it based on a medical necessity and it's it's an inappropriate referral, I mean, you don't want to say, well, okay, you can. Uh, I want to order an MRI in somebody's hand for no reason every every week, right? You know, for a year, you know, they can refuse that because it's medically inappropriate. Um, but then that's not the grounds they're basing it on. It could be totally medically appropriate. They're they're denying it. Uh, again, uh, because, you know, and why would they deny it from a doctor they don't pay for? In theory, an insurance company should love us. They're, they're garnering the advantage of our caring for a patient without having to pay for us. So in theory, they get to keep more of that premium. Now, there's weird things I don't get into with medical loss ratio and these other things that actually makes it so insurance companies may actually be incentivized to keep the prices high because they keep a percentage of medical payments of so 20% of medical payments. So if they pay more for medical care, they have 20% of a larger number. So actually, they have a disincentive to truly want to decrease costs. Uh, but aside from that, why would they not want to take advantage of, of doctors working for essentially for their patients without having to pay those doctors? And it's because the control of the doctor occurs through the payment mechanism. And in reality, primary care doctors are cheap. 
we are not a sizable portion of that expensive healthcare system. So if they can pull the strings on us, they can pull the strings on the downstream spending, control where we refer people for MRIs, for surgical interventions, and the things that really are driving those medical costs. Right. Now, um, tell us what you, you kind of alluded to a little bit about legislators and, and stuff. And now what can the government do to, in your paper, what did you talk about the, the government solution is to um, help make healthcare less expensive? Yeah. So, so a lot of it is trying to give the power back to the patient, keep those dollars in the patient's hands. Um, I'll, I'll conceptually, I'll, not into the specifics of the paper, but conceptually, there was uh, um, in Indiana, they had a Medicaid program called Healthy Indiana Plan. And they had a very unique approach to Medicaid, where instead of the government running Medicaid, they actually gave control of some of those dollars to the Medicaid recipients. And this was met with great, you know, consternation. How, how can you give that to these people? They're poor, you know, it's very derogatory kind of impressions. You know, they're poor, they, you know, they, they're poor for a reason. They can't manage those money, leave it to the bureaucrats. They're going to do a better job. But when they actually gave the control to these Medicaid recipients, they did a better job managing the funds, actually decreasing the Medicaid expenditures and and happiness, satisfaction within the Medicaid program was off the charts. It was over 90%. So people were really happy with that. The problem was this was done before they actually had a market to, to shop from. They, so the, the only way these people reduced costs is they kind of determined themselves where they wanted to buy, uh, you know, what, whether they wanted to do a service or not. They couldn't choose from a selection of services with different cost points. So the general theory of it is, is keep as many of those dollars under the control of the patient themselves, allow them to shop, um, that they will get the, again, they will drive this. They will drive the better quality uh, and the lower costs uh, th through, through the free market principles. And so we try to encourage those kind of, um, those kind of uh, policies. And, and for DPC directly, it's merging us with cost-effective coverage products. So right now you pay for your primary care through an insurance company. Um, well, that could be a double payment if you're seeing a direct primary care doctor because you're paying your insurance to pay the primary care doctor who is not being paid by the insurance and then you're double paying your, your primary care doctor. So we try to make savings in, in other regards with the inexpensive labs and medicine and everything so that we're essentially free to that patient. But in reality, we could be even more cost effective if there wasn't that double payment. So we're trying to allow uh, or trying to incentive, encourage that they create wrap insurance products, insurance products that will cover for catastrophic events, but exclude from the premium the payment for primary care because it's already being done by that patient. Um, because many people pay thousands of dollars for primary care services through their premium, unaware that they could accomplish the same thing for several hundred dollars directly in a more, right. uh, more pristine relationship. So you are still under the impression that for primary care services and non-catastrophic stuff that ultimately the individual consumer should pay for their own health care. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Because unlike the common misperception, we're actually not expensive. Uh, direct primary care is budgetable. It's, you know, it's fairly inexpensive. It's predictable. It's affordable. Um, uh, it's, you know, so it's, if the nice advantage of a membership model is, you know, from the beginning of the year, what your expenditure is for, for primary care services. And it doesn't matter on utilization because we don't charge per visit. So, so you come into that, you're having a good idea. And if you have a really bad year, 
you know, it's, it doesn't cost you more, at least in the primary care side. You may have more expenditures from one, from imaging and specialty referral and things of that sort. But that's budgetable, it's affordable, it's predictable. The reason for insurance, which people have lost, is to protect against catastrophic financial loss. Right. The sad truth is that insurance in the healthcare arena, medical insurance, has become the catastrophic financial loss. Right. It itself, you can get a, a ACA Obamacare plans uh, for a family for $26,000, $28,000 a year. Um, on the cash market, you can do a laminectomy, which is a spine surgery um, for about $11,000. So essentially you're doing almost two and a half spine surgeries a year. Well, people don't do that, except in the most. <laughs> right. Right. So why pay for two and a half spine surgeries a year every year when you're healthy? You know, keep that catastrophic coverage for when a catastrophe occurs. You got a heart attack, you need a bypass. That's a catastrophe. That's a year in which you needed to use that insurance. Normal years, physical exams, things of that sort, that's not expensive. Uh, don't get insurance to cover uh, common and affordable things because they will no longer be affordable. Well, and one of the things is, too, is that I don't think people realize how inexpensive healthcare can be in general, even for catastrophic stuff. That is, that is, that can be actually shoppable. I know people don't understand that, um, but let's give an example. I know of a patient, a, a DPC patient that was in Arizona, and he went to um, he he had um, a health sharing ministry, and his he had a heart attack, and his bill was three hundred thousand dollars, and guess what? The hospital wrote off two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, from the heart attack. So loss on that. Yeah, exactly. No, they're still making money. So it just shows you what a racket, what a racket the system is. And here's the thing: if that patient had typical insurance, um, you know, his copay probably would have been one of his twenty percent. It would have been like, uh, let's see, sixty thousand dollars, literally, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas because he was paying with a, cash with a health sharing ministry, um, he was able to pay $50,000 and the health sharing ministry paid it all. Um, and I don't think people need to realize that they just need to realize what a racket traditional health insurance is. And there are alternatives to it. We don't have to go with the traditional health insurance route. Yep. Yep. Short term limited duration. We talk about that in our paper, too. We talk about indemnity plans, short-term limited duration plans, the health sharing ministries. Um, you know, those are great, you know, uh, um, adjuncts to what we're attempting to do. You know, it's interesting. You kind of touched on a point in one of my talks. I talk about the fallacy of good insurance. So a lot of people will say, oh, I've got this good insurance. Why? It's a platinum plan. It's $30,000. It's wonderful. Well, <laughs> I, I have these, these graphs that show because there's your premium, what you pay every month, uh, whether you use it or not. Um, there's the uh, deductible, which is what you pay before your premium covers, I mean, before your insurance covers anything. And then there's maximal out of pocket, the additional price you pay in co-payments and such until you've maxed out that insurance plan. You're not going to spend more on that, that given year. Now, there are interesting contractual uh, loopholes I get to somehow get people to pay even more than that anyway. But um, what, what I do is I actually went on online and I got quotes on a number of plans, bronze plans, gold plans and such. And what you see is, is that though there's a larger initial out-of-pocket on the, the cheaper plans, the premium is so much less that once you hit your out-of-pocket maximum, it's still less. So in the worst year of your life, the, the bronze plan is still cheaper than the gold plan because you're maxing out the gold or the platinum plan anyway with all your copays. Um, and, and yet in a year when you didn't get sick, 
that massive premium price difference is it mainly if you use it in an HSA, it's now in your pocket and is your money. Once you gave it to the insurance company in the form of a premium, you are not seeing it back. It's yep. gone. Right. Well, I, I, I did a video on it and uh, it's called what if what if auto insurance worked like healthcare insurance? And it's a great analogy and I'll I'll send it you that viral, video. It? It, it, yeah, it did go viral. And it's a great analogy on on um you know, when people say they have good insurance and, and, and I'll just say it again, I've said it many times, there is no such thing as good health insurance. If you have traditional health insurance, there is no such thing as good insurance. You're being overcharged. You're being told where to go by not necessarily the, to the best place with the best quality and the best service. There is no such thing as good insurance, period. Now, the good thing is, is that you can find alternatives like health sharing ministries. And I'm not familiar with the indemnity policies that you were talking about, but I think I've heard a little bit about them, but um, you know, and here's the thing is that traditional health insurance, I don't care if it's premier blue cross. I don't care if it's United healthcare, it is government insurance. Why do I say that? Because the government says what is covered at what price. It is so highly regulated that it is government insurance. So whether you think you're on government insurance or you think it's private insurance, it's all government insurance if you have traditional health insurance. Yeah, you know, that struck me most back when I was still insurance-based and we had Blue Cross Blue Shield that was requiring us to do certain things and they sent an auditor to our office. And we were told, well, they're not just auditing the Blue Cross Blue Shield charts. They're auditing all of them. And we said, well, what, what, what do you, why? Right. You know, you, you're not involved in their care. You know what? And it was it was because it was an edict from on high. It was, you know, the government was telling them what to cover, what what to what to <laughs> look for. And and so they and it's interesting. I was very blessed to uh, be involved with uh, uh, the uh, uh, political aspirations of a state senator here who was running for governor in the state of Michigan. And we had on healthcare policy, he was very involved in it. And I, he had invited me several times to meet with some of these executives at various health uh, insurance companies and just how much of what they do is, is dictated from on high. It is, it is, right. it's almost uh, an incestuous relationship there. I mean, it's very hard to tell where government ends and the insurance companies you know, starts. Um, there's such blurring of the lines in there. So people thinking that these these companies are spontaneously coming up with all these things simultaneously. Oh no, it's coming from on high. They're being told what to do. Exactly, exactly. Well, one thing I did do, and and, and Dr. Savage, I will give you a copy of my book because I wrote a book on this, and it's called Sickened: How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It, and. You are part of the fix. Direct primary care doctors that get out of the system are part of the fix. The number one, there's a six-step solution, and the number one solution is to educate and empower individuals to be in charge of their own health, and that includes their finances. So um, I appreciate you, make, you know, helping to realize our goal today of educating and empowering consumers to take charge of their own health and that healthcare can be um, inexpensive and affordable. So thank you so much, Dr. Savage. Appreciate so, it. If anybody yeah. has a chance, please share our, uh, you know, our heritage policy paper with their uh, legislators. Uh, hopefully, if we get some traction on this, we can get some policy that's uh, facilitating these kind of changes. So what, what's the best way to get a hold of you if our listeners and viewers want to get a hold of you and have some questions about that paper? Uh, sure. Uh, my, uh, my medical practice uh, e email is office at yourchoicedirectcare.com. Awesome. So as we finish this podcast up, Dr. Savage, what do you have a passion for? What drives you? Uh, well, well, medicine. And, and that's actually awesome. in an attempt to 
to uh, you know rectify my profession, I knew we had to get out of the way it's it's being done. It's funny because everybody thinks we're new and innovative. Uh, no, no, this is not the 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 abnormality. In fact, actually, we're going to the way medicine was practiced for thousands yep. of years. It's only been in the last thirty or forty that it's been run by insurance companies and the government. Um, it, it, you know, it's just that that's many people's lifetime. You know, so many people have not lived in a world where government didn't run insurance and and insurance didn't run doctors. So they're unaware of anything else. They think we're new, radical, and, and in fact, no, we're we're going back to the historic way of practicing, which is a doctor working for their patient. Absolutely, and I thank you for doing that so much. So thank you for being on and and realizing our goal today, Doctor Savage. We will definitely be in touch. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Sean. All right, you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham Thursday. You do not want to miss out, Doctor um, Doctor Lee, Doctor Elizabeth Valite. She is going to be talking about a subject I cannot say on here without getting censored. So don't miss out. Um, nine a.m. Pacific, eight a.m. Pacific Standard Time, nine a.m. Mountain Time. I'll be streaming from Mountain Time. You don't want to miss out on that podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you, Doctor Savage. 